Hello, friends, and welcome to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. It is great to have you here today. Um, I got to start off by saying that my voice is kind of shot. Um, I'm getting over some kind of weird, cold, respiratory, sinus, plague-ish thing. I don't really know what it is, what it was, um, but it's lingering, and my voice may or may not hold up over the next bunch of minutes together. So if I start to sound more and more strange as the time goes on, I do apologize, but uh, I wanted to try to get this out for you um, on the normal Monday morning. So uh, this is it, right? We are ending 2018, and uh, as we do, I'm in this, I don't know, this short season of reflection. You know, I told you over the last few weeks that my intention for this episode, uh, number 22, was to share with you the theology paper that I wrote uh, on the book of Mark for my very last class at school. And uh, we've been talking about the Gospel of Mark over the last bunch of months here at the What If Project. And so I thought that sharing my paper on the Gospel of Mark and all that I learned in the writing research process, much of which I picked up um, writing the blog posts and kind of doing these podcasts, I thought that would be a perfect way to, you know, end the year. Uh, But it turns out that verbally recording a research paper didn't really quite look like I thought it would. You know, I started recording it, I don't know, five or six times, and each time I got somewhere near the middle, and I just hit stop, and I was like, this just isn't working. You know, it doesn't feel the way that I thought it would, doesn't feel like I want it to, it's not really flowing. Uh, So that said, what what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the entire paper on whatifproject.net, that's the uh, What If Project website. You can head over there, click on blog, and you'll find it there front and center. You can also visit the show notes for this episode. Click on the link, it'll bring you right there. But for today, what I want to do is I want to, instead of talking you through the entire paper, I'm going to take you through the first part of the paper, which is where I talk about um, the background of Mark and about six observations I made while reading Mark's gospel concerning the way that Mark presents Jesus to his readers. And I think that that's really important because each gospel writer presents Jesus differently, I think. And Mark presents him in what I think is the most unique way of all four. Mark's Jesus is of particular interest to me because the way that Mark seems to present his version of Jesus is also the version of Jesus I've come to know quite well and I've come quite fond of over this last year of my life. And that's a weird thing to say, but I think it'll make more sense um, as we move on. So, so don't go anywhere. you got to kind of listen through the whole thing. Uh, but 2018, if you haven't noticed, has been a, a radical one for me in terms of my faith. Uh, and I think the What If Project reflects that very well. Uh, just asking lots of questions, you know, mainly what if there are ways of reading the Bible uh, that are different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us. So for me, I come from a fairly conservative background, right, where the Bible is seen as literal. It's an inerrant, holy, perfect document that's meant to be used as a rule book or a constitution where we use it to defend the faith, um, shame those who aren't living according to the rules, and somehow use it uh, with all of that as a guidebook for a good and somewhat holy life, right? People who don't believe in Jesus go to hell. God sacrificed Jesus so that by believing in him, I could go to heaven. Homosexuality is a sin. 
One day the rapture is going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to take people to heaven. The world will burn behind him. God's wrath will be poured out on the sinners. Right? Adam and Eve were real people. Noah's Ark was a real thing. Right? All that sort of stuff. And I'm realizing, though, that, that maybe that's not the best way to use the Bible. Maybe there are better ways. Like maybe the Bible isn't so much a rule book as it is a collection of stories and books and letters that span the course of thousands of years, written by close to a hundred different people, that show us what it looks like to be a human being who walks with and is indwelled with the divine. And maybe Jesus didn't come to be killed by God, so that by believing in him we might go to heaven when we die, but maybe Jesus came to earth as God to be killed by humans so that he could shout those words from the cross that humanity is forgiven and thus model for us what it looks like to be a person who forgives and loves the enemy and thus ushers heaven to earth with every word we speak and move we make. Maybe that's the gospel. Maybe that's the good news. Anyway, so my thoughts, they're evolving, obviously, right? My ideas are growing. My faith is definitely changing. And not everyone is a fan of that, I've noticed, right? Not everyone is on board Not everyone is super encouraging, understanding, supportive. Uh, Some have mocked the process, both online and to my face. Um, I've been called a heretic, a fake pastor. Uh, Some dude called me a snowflake, a social justice warrior. Christian accused of going off the deep end, warned of becoming, um, going too far, right? Accused of just tickling people's ears with what they want to hear and not giving them the hard truth, right? All that kind of stuff. But, but I think it's all really good, really. And to be honest, I haven't felt this excited or this close to God in a long, long time. And so I'm just going to keep on going. And the cool thing is that the people in my life who matter the most, they are on board. Uh, my wife is actually in the midst of this process of rethinking faith or might want to call it deconstruction and reconstruction. She's right in the middle of that with me. Uh, My parents, my best friends, some key professors and mentors in my life, uh, from the people who really matter the most, uh, I've received nothing but love and encouragement and support during this last year and these last five months or so of the What If Project being uh, live. So anyway, enough of the intro. Uh, Let's get moving. This is episode number 22. And uh, I'm calling it The Jesus I Came to Know in 2018. Uh, First, though, we need to go into some of the background of Mark's gospel, which we talked about in the second episode of the podcast. But we're going to go through it again uh, just as a refresh, and then we'll move into the six observations about the way that Mark presents Jesus to his readers. And then I'll close with one observation about those six observations. So I'll repeat that a few times just as a kind of a keep it as a map for where we're going in our time together today. But again, I'm going to talk about some introduction material, six observations about Jesus, and then one observation about those six observations. And my voice is still going, believe it or not. I'm still talking. I'm moving my mouth and noise is still coming out. So this is good. July 19th, uh, 64 AD, a fire erupted in Rome. This fire blazed for five days, came to a standstill, And then on day six, it continued to burn for another 48 hours before really burning the whole city to the ground. The Roman Roman world was looking for answers. You know, how did this fire begin? What happened? Who did it? And soon gossip began to spread that Emperor Nero was the mastermind. 
Now, it was common knowledge that Nero had these lofty plans to kind of tear down old buildings and then rebuild the city of Rome with up-to-date modern architecture. And so the rumor was that Nero started the fire and burned down the city so that his plans could move forward without a hitch. And as more and more people began to talk, Nero obviously began to panic. And soon he found the perfect group of people to pin the blame on, the Jews. Now, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately for the Jews, their part of the city was untouched by the fire because it was far removed from the main part of the city and separated by a really large river. But Nero saw their fully intact community as the perfect way to shift the blame off of himself and onto the Jews. And so he responded to the rumor that he was responsible with a rumor of his own. He said the Jews did this. So the Jews now are uncertain of what Nero is going to do, so they begin to panic as well. And a group of Jews approached Nero, or Nero's people, and shifted the blame once more to a smaller sect of Jews, the Messianic Jews, or the Christ followers. So Nero now is enraged. He immediately sends soldiers through the streets of the Jewish community, and a literal genocide occurs. Uh, Messianic Jewish men, women, children, they're dragged from their homes, and either murdered in the streets or dragged to the Circus Maximus where they were sprinkled with blood and eaten alive by dogs. And it was a time of terror for family, right, and for people. As families turned on families, uh, friends turned on friends, fear and paranoia ran wild for the few Christians that were remaining as this whole Messianic Jewish community was pretty much wiped from the face of the earth. And, And so my thoughts about Mark begin here Because Mark's gospel arrived on the scene of Rome shortly after this genocide occurred. Scholars think somewhere between 65 and 70 AD is when Mark's gospel arrives in the wake of the fire that happened in 64 AD. So just a year or so after um, this whole thing happens. And so you don't really need to think very hard to imagine the amount of fear, pain, loss, shame, anger, bitterness that hovered over the remaining Messianic Jews who had somehow escaped Nero's wrath. Right? Not only were they betrayed by the larger Jewish community, but their families, children, friends had been murdered right before their eyes. More than anything else, terror, shame, and a deep sense of abandonment make up the context of Mark's gospel. And once we grasp this idea, I think it becomes kind of evident that Mark was not really writing so much to document the life of Jesus, but to piece together a narrative some 35 years after Jesus' death that would encourage the Christ followers who had escaped death, remind them of the mission that Jesus left them with, and push them forward to follow in his footsteps, to be unfazed by the threats of the same empire that had crucified and unsuccessfully tried to rid the world of their savior. So with all of that in mind, Mark opens his gospel and he says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now in all of the Bible, this might be the most meaning packed statement ever recorded because for Mark's readers, those early beat up Christians, the terms gospel and son of God meant something entirely differently than they probably mean to you and me. You see, gospel was a Greek expression that literally meant glad tidings. And it was a technical term for the news of victory, especially in a military battle. So in the Roman Empire, for example, it was a term that was literally shouted in the streets 
when Rome took a colony or province under its control following a military victory. They would shout and say, glad tidings are coming because Rome has extended its power over your city. In other words, Rome is your new parent. Rome is your new mother. Rome is your new home. Rome is your new protector. Rome is victorious. And this is gospel. This is good news. This is glad tidings. This is gospel. In a similar way, son of God was a term that Caesar used in reference to himself. Uh, Printed on many Roman coins was an inscription that read Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, which laid claim that Caesar Augustus was the son of God, a claim that dated way back to 42 BC when his stepfather Julius Caesar died and was given the title divine Julius Caesar. So one might say then that as Mark opens up his story, He's really taken a shot at the emperor and the Roman Empire because, in essence, he's declaring that good news doesn't lie in the Roman Empire. And the good news has nothing to do with the military strength of Rome or Caesar. Good news, rather, is found in none other than Jesus, the only true Son of God. And the news is good, even in the midst of the horror that you, Rome, have bestowed upon our people. We will keep believing, we will keep following the true Son of God. We will keep our faith. There's nothing that you can do to take it away. So try, try your best. Tap on your darkest evil, but we're still here. Believing, loving, joyful, holding on to hope. Jesus is king. Caesar is not. Now, one of the commentaries I read um, in my writing of this paper was uh, Binding the Strongman by Ched Myers, and I referred to it a bunch of times in previous episodes. But he says this, he says, Mark is serving notice that he is challenging the apparatus of imperial propagation. His dramatic opening, unlike the birth stories of Matthew and Luke, heralds the advent of an anointed leader who is confirmed by the deity and who proclaims a kingdom of his own. In other words, Mark is taking direct aim at Caesar and legitimating myths. So with all of that in mind, what I want to do during this episode is share with you Um, six observations about the way that Mark presents Jesus in his narrative with all that background in mind and the ways in which Mark uses that Jesus to challenge the structures of power and oppression that were dominant in his day, mainly in the church and in the Roman Empire. And then I want to make one observation about those six observations. So again, we talked about some background and now six observations about Mark's Jesus and then in, in conclusion, one observation about those six observations. And I should say at the outset that these observations are fully intended to be radical and progressive in nature, right? Pushing the envelope, rocking the boat, it's what I do, right? Suggesting that perhaps um, the way that the church typically understands the stories of Jesus as told in Mark's gospel might not be the only way, the best way, or the most complete way, and that perhaps a new way is needed in this time, and in this culture. Now, before we talk about Mark's presentation of Jesus, it is important to note that each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of Jesus in their own unique way. That's why I keep saying Mark's Jesus. Matthew has his own Jesus, Luke has his own Jesus, John has his own Jesus. Like, not only do they differ in some of the stories they include, But when they do share the same stories, oftentimes they contradict greatly in their details about numbers of people involved, about the types of people involved, the names of the people, um, the locations of the stories, different things like that. And now this does not make the Gospels unreliable in any way. 
but rather it shows modern readers that each writer was framing the story of Jesus in a certain way so as to more clearly speak to his immediate audience. In his book, Heart and Mind, Dr. Alexander Shia, who came onto the podcast last fall, he says this, In each gospel, the writer reframed the core story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, emphasizing and even altering its elements to give the particular gospel clear relevance and guidance for the singular historical realities and dilemmas of its audience. In other words, the four gospels vary in detail, not because the writers had bad memories. Not because they were trying to be deceitful, but because each writer was more concerned with addressing the realities of their times than they were in creating a record that would be preserved and read as a historical document some thousands of years later. Right? Writing a history book was not their agenda. So that said, Mark crafts the narrative of Jesus' life in a specific way so as to address his audience in and around Rome that was left to piece their lives back together in the aftermath of Nero's genocide. That's the purpose of this gospel. He was not interested in creating a historical document that would tell future readers each and every detail of Jesus' life, but was most concerned with reminding his readers of who Jesus was, what Jesus called them to do, and how Jesus might challenge them to respond in their circumstances. Make sense? Good. Okay, so now we've got our six observations about Mark's Jesus that are just as important in 2018 as they were in 65 to 70 AD. Okay, six observations. Number one, Jesus is the hearer of the cry. Jesus is the hearer of the cry. I'm going to go back a little bit into the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 4, a young man named Cain murdered his brother Abel in a furious fit of jealous rage. And in verse 10, the storyteller says that God confronted Cain and said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Later in Exodus 3, uh, the nation of Israel was enslaved in the land of Egypt where they were beaten, abused, used, and overworked to make brick and mortar for Pharaoh. In verse 7, God says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Again, in Psalm 120, verse 1, the psalmist says that I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me. Now, although these verses and many more like him, don't appear to have much to do with the Gospel of Mark, they do have everything to do with the Jesus that Mark presents to his readers. Because just as Yahweh in the Old Testament heard the cry of the oppressed, so Jesus in the Gospels hears the cry of the oppressed. For example, in verse 21 of Mark 1, uh, Mark shares the story of Jesus arriving in a place called Capernaum and healing a man who was possessed by a demon. The demon caused the man to yell out to Jesus, who then ordered the demon to be quiet before he restored the man back to his normal state of mind. Likewise, in verse 40, Mark says that Jesus went around casting out demons as well as being approached by a leper who knelt down at his feet and cried out, begging to be made well. In chapter 5, he healed another demon-possessed man who ran to him and cried out at the top of his lungs. Later in chapter 5, he raised a synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead amidst a weeping crowd and healed an old woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And in Mark chapter 10, he restored the sight of a blind beggar who cried out to him while those who passed by told him to be quiet. Now, although that's a quick and brief overview of the many times that Jesus stopped what he was doing to validate and speak into the condition of an impressed human being, 
Perhaps it's Mark's way of telling the reader that the God of the Old Testament who hears the cries of the oppressed all throughout Jewish history is present in Jesus. To hear the cries of the people who are oppressed, abused, and left for dead in the wake of Nero's genocide. Right, the God who heard the cries of the oppressed then, Mark is saying, hears the cries of the oppressed now. He's here, and you don't have to be afraid. And I think that's a truth that we can carry forward all the way to 2018. He is here, whatever your circumstances are, and you don't have to be afraid. Observation number two, Jesus is the boundary crosser. Mark's Jesus has no boundaries, right? Whenever people draw a line in the sand to separate one person from another or one group from another, Mark shows Jesus crossing that line and bringing the person or people back to the other side. For instance, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus fed 5,000 people on the predominantly Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, while in Mark 80, he fed 4,000 people on the Gentile side of the sea. A quick skim through the gospel of Mark shows Jesus and his disciples constantly moving from one side of the lake to the other, where they interacted with, healed, fed, ate with people of various different backgrounds, their own Jewish community as well as many Gentile communities of people that the Jews declared to be dirty, unclean, godless, vile. For Jesus, it did not matter who people were, where they were from, or what their story was. He went to all people everywhere and welcomed them in, no matter what boundaries were put in place. Now, one such community was a group from Syria known as the Phoenicians. Uh, The Phoenicians were made up of various people groups who occupied the land of Canaan before Israel's arrival uh, to the promised land in the book of Joshua. Uh, The Canaanites, the Moabites, etc. So as the story goes, when the Israelites took over the land of Canaan, when they went into the promised land, they brutally murdered everyone who called it home, took whoever might have survived as prisoner, and forever declared that the people groups in those places were dirty, unclean, unworthy of inclusion in the family of God. In Mark 7, though, Mark shows Jesus dialoguing with a Syrophoenician woman. So this woman who is an outcast, Jesus is talking with her. And this woman begged Jesus to heal her daughter who was filled with some kind of evil spirit. Now, contrary to what we would expect, Jesus responded to her in a way that one would have expected a typical hateful Jew to respond. She's asking, would you please heal my daughter? He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Right? In other words, let the Jewish people have the food. It's not right to throw the food to you, to dogs. Now, by referring to her and her people as dogs, any Jew with an earshot would have been like, yes, right? They would have nodded their head in approval because dogs was a term that generations of Jews would have thrown around in reference to the Phoenicians. But why would Jesus do this, right? Why would he align himself with generations of hatred and bitterness and exclusion when his life and mission up to that point appeared to be the exact opposite? Well, scholars have various answers, but perhaps he was trying to draw his listeners into the conversation. Because as the story went on, the woman persisted and refused to give up, which caused Jesus to declare that because of her faith and because of her persistence, the demon had left her daughter. Rather than say, get lost, rather than tell her that she was, had no place in God's family, rather than tell her that she was dirty, an outcast, unworthy, Jesus crossed the boundary that generations upon generations of Jews had drawn between the Israelites and the Phoenicians and did what the Jewish world would have considered to be unthinkable. 
He crossed the boundary, healed this woman's daughter, right? Indeed, Mark Jesus has no boundaries. Number three, third observation, Jesus is the rule breaker. Mark chapter eight, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him for saying that he would soon die. Uh, Peter, just to give some context, had just voiced that Jesus was the Messiah. And the last thing that a Jewish Messiah was supposed to do was die, <laughs> right? Jewish tradition, the tradition that Peter was raised in, said that a Messiah would come and be the next great warlord and would restore Israel back to the top of the world and usher in the kingdom of God. And so Mark says that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him for talking about dying, to which Jesus responded and said, get behind me, Satan. Right? Jesus had no regard, absolutely no regard for any tradition no matter how important or central it was to the Jewish faith that stood contrary to his mission of love, grace, and forgiveness for all people. A chapter later, something really weird happened. Uh, Mark says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain where he was transfigured in glistening white before them as he spoke with two long dead Jewish heroes, Moses and Elijah. Mark says that Peter did not know what to say for they were terrified And so he told Jesus that he was going to build him, Moses, and Elijah their own houses or their own dwelling places. Uh, But before he could say even another word, a voice boomed from a cloud and said, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah were gone. Now, given the context of what just happened in chapter 8, perhaps Peter wanted to build the three houses so that Moses and Elijah would stay a while and set Jesus straight. You know, remind him of his real mission and see to it that Jesus stopped with all the crazy talk about dying. Again, scholars differ on exactly what was happening in the story, but whatever the case may be, the father shouted from heaven and said that they should listen to Jesus. Right? Not a little bit of Elijah and Moses and a little bit of Jesus, but that they should listen to Jesus even if what Jesus said was contrary to the tradition that they were raised in. Where Moses had to practice capital punishment in Leviticus 20.10 and stone adulterers, Jesus said in John 8.7 that he who has never sinned should throw the first stone and gave a woman caught in adultery her freedom to move on and live her life in peace. And whereas Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy the enemies of God in 1 Kings chapter 18, Jesus rebuked James and John when they wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans in Luke 9.55. Although tradition might have said one thing, and although Moses and Elijah helped prepare the way, Jesus oftentimes stood in direct contrast to those traditions because he didn't come to continue what they started, but to initiate an entirely different way, new way of being in the world. Number four, Jesus is the king of the upside-down kingdom. Um, In Mark's gospel, the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate is one that is upside-down and stand in a direct contrast to the kingdoms of the world. In Jesus' kingdom, the high and mighty are brought down, and those who have been pushed and cast aside are raised up, brought in, and given places of authority, power, and ranking. In Mark 10, for instance, uh, James and John approached Jesus and said that they wanted him to do for them whatever they asked, right? So he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. In other words, when Jesus came into his glory, when all was said and done, James and John wanted positions of power, 
right? Glory, fame, honor. Now, interestingly, Mark references the left and right of Jesus later on in chapter 15, when Jesus finally comes into his promised glory while nailed to the cross. Verse 25, Mark says that it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And with him, they crucified two bandits on his right and on his left. In his commentary on Mark, N.T. Wright points out that James and John don't know what they're asking for, but Mark's reader, after a few chapters of waiting and suspense, will discover. When Jesus sits in his glory with one on his right and one on his left while on the cross, and the reader discovers that the people on his left and right are not faithful disciples or star theology students or astute priests, but two thieves, criminals, Attempted murderers, rebels, outcasts, two people whose society decided to throw away and deem washed up and beyond hope. In all of this, perhaps Mark wants his readers to remember that in Jesus' kingdom, wrongs are made right. The lowly are raised up, the proud are cast down. Those who are on the outside are brought in, and those who think they deserve power and position don't get much. While those who don't expect it and don't ask for it get plenty. In other words, perhaps Mark wants his readers to know that the Jesus in his narrative is one who operates on a different level than the kings of the world, and that his kingdom is one that is unlike any kingdom in the world, any kingdom that the world has ever seen. It's upside down. It's different. It's a different way of ruling the world. Number five, Jesus the the atheist. Jesus the atheist. So, In Mark 15, 34, Mark says that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now those words from Jesus are a direct quote from Psalm 22, which is an ancient Jewish prayer that is ultimately about trust, faith, and the might of God. Mark, however, tells only of Jesus reciting the first verse, which was a heartfelt statement about a deep sense of loss and abandonment something that the original readers, mind you, who just went through Nero's genocide, would have been very familiar with. In his book, The Insurrection, uh, Peter Rollins makes reference to the story and says that it is, the only, it is only when one sees the crucifixion as the moment where God loses everything that we begin to glimpse the true theological significance of the event. Because on the cross, we are confronted with God losing the security of God. And he goes on to argue that on the cross, Jesus experienced a personal absence of God a personal and deep sense of atheism, not, he says, an atheism that arises from some rational reflection upon the absence of the divinity, but rather one that dwells up from the trauma of personally experiencing that absence. In other words, in this moment on the cross, Jesus stood in solidarity with those who have no sense of God's existence those who feel and believe for whatever reason they may have as if there is no divine, those who have lost their faith or maybe never had any faith at all. And he came to the sense not by reasoning or dialoguing with people about the existence of God, but through his agonizing experience on the cross. So rather than hang from the cross and shout about how everyone should believe in God, don't doubt, hold on to some kind of invisible faith amidst your own trials and tribulations, Mark's Jesus shouts from the cross his very own sense of loss and abandonment. And he says to every atheist in the world, I get it. You see, Jesus' words will forever be recorded in Scripture as a reminder that he not only stands with the faithful and with those who cling to their steadfast belief, but that he stands with those who find themselves all the way on the other side of the spectrum. 
those who have lost their faith or maybe never had any to begin with. Scholars have written extensively on why Jesus spoke these words and what exactly was going through his heart and mind as they left his mouth, but perhaps the reason why Mark included them in this narrative about Jesus is because it acts as an exclamation point on the larger point that Mark has been making all throughout his gospel, that Jesus travels to all sides of the sea to eat with, spend time with, touch, heal, align, and invite all people everywhere to experience their great worth and take part in his kingdom. Indeed, even, in, even if Mark's readers found themselves in a place of doubt or in a place of losing their faith after witnessing the destruction and massacre caused by Nero, even if they found themselves shouting from their own blood-stained streets, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Jesus would stand with them and join them in their questioning and never let them go. Jesus the atheist. Number six, Jesus is the guy who never spoke about hell. Fundamentalists often argue that Jesus spoke about hell more than he spoke about anything else. One of the big verses they point to is Mark 9, 43, where Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, for it is better to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, on the surface, it appears that Jesus is talking about a place of eternal torture, Right? a place where people go and they die so that they can suffer for their sins and for their refusal to repent and accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. The problem, though, is twofold. Uh, number one, not only would such an interpretation have been completely foreign to Mark's original readers who had little to no concern about who went where when they died, but two, the English word hell is completely different, a completely different meaning than the original Greek um, word for hell. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna, also known as the Valley of Hinnom, which was a very real place located on the southwest side of the city of Jerusalem, which was the city garbage dump, and a place in the Old Testament where the people of Judah literally sacrificed their sons and daughters in fire. It was a place where people tossed their trash at one time in history and tossed the dead bodies of their children um, up in another time of history, a place where a fire literally burned day and night a place where wild animals would roam and fight and gnash their teeth over their next meal. It was quite literally a place of unquenchable fire and horror. So although Jesus did talk about hell in the Gospels, he didn't talk about the evangelical fundamentalist hell. He didn't talk about a place of eternal torture, a place where people who believe the wrong things about him go to suffer for all of eternity. He spoke of a burning pile of trash as an illustrative way of saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to enter life uh, without your hand than to watch your whole life go up in flames because your hand caused you to do something stupid that you will forever regret. Right? The reality is that Mark's Jesus is not a torturing warlord who threatens people with flames of eternal torture for crossing him the wrong way, having poor theology, having no sense of theology, whatever. Mark's Jesus, rather, is the one who is consistently warning people, the church and the empire in particular, of the consequences of living a life that neglects the basic tenets of his kingdom, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and inclusion, and how neglecting those things can and will cause lives, communities, and the world to go up in flames. Yeah, the word hell appears in the New Testament roughly 12 times, depending on the translation, and it is almost exclusively used by Jesus, but as a reference to the Valley of Hinnom, as a warning not to people who fail to believe in him, but as a warning to the oppressive structures who choose to ignore the principles of his kingdom and heap heavy burdens on already weakened people 
draw lines in the sand to create opposition, and elevate themselves above everyone else. Jesus did not talk about hell in the sense that you and I understand the term. So there you have it. Six observations about Jesus from the book of Mark. My voice is still going, barely. But Jesus is the hero of the cry, the boundary crosser, the rule breaker, the king of the upside down kingdom, the atheist, and the guy who never spoke about hell. Now, one observation about those six observations. Um, in his book, Global Christianity, Philip Jenkins says that all too often statements about what modern Christians accept or what Catholics believe today refer only to the ever-shrinking remnant of what Western Christianity and Western Catholics believe. Such assertions are outrageous, he says, for Europe is not the faith. The era of Western Christianity has passed within our life, and the day of the Southern Church is dawning. In other words, oftentimes when people refer to what Christians believe, they're referring to what Western, uh, North American, white evangelical Christianity teaches, and lumping all of Christianity under that umbrella, as if Western North American Christianity sets the standard for all Christians everywhere, as if North American Christianity is Christianity. Jenkins argues that this is a huge mistake, as Christianity is actually moving away from the West and towards the South and East, thus returning to its roots. So contrary to popular belief, Christianity did not originate in places like Rome, Italy, United States, or some other huge Western empire. It started rather in the Near East, where Christianity was for the first thousand years stronger in places like Asia and North Africa than it was in Europe. Uh, so understanding where Christianity began and where it is today moving back to uh, challenges the idea that Christianity is nothing more than a white or Western belief system that was forced onto the rest of the world under the pressure of missionaries, evangelists, and the like. Uh, this is an important place to end because let's be realistic. Much of what I just talked about concerning Jesus would not prove very popular in your typical North American church, right? Like ideas such as everyone is welcome, hell is not what the church has taught it to be, and Jesus tapping into his inner atheist right, are not ideas that you'd hear people talking about from most pulpits throughout America. Right? The West, rather, has ingrained into the church a sense of dualism, where some are good and holy and others will be in heaven, while others are evil and dirty and will be excluded in hell and tortured forever, in a sense of this nationalistic allegiance where anyone who is an atheist is an enemy of Christianity. What you got to realize, though, is that this type of Western thinking was not found in the early movements of the church in the East. Rather, this dualistic heaven and hell, everyone who's not a Christian is an enemy of Christianity, that kind of thinking was grafted into Christianity as the movement made its way West towards places like Rome, Italy, and eventually North America. So as it starts to move out of the Near East, it starts to take on different shape and evolve. As Christianity today, however, moves away from the West and back to the East and the South, new emphases will be made on the Western uh, dualistic heaven and hell thinking as it shifted to the back seat. Right, so we're moving back to our roots away from that Western dualistic mindset. Uh, Jenkins says it best when he says that as Southern Christianity continues to expand and mature, it will assuredly develop a wider theological spectrum than at present, and stronger liberal tendencies may well emerge. He then says that the types of Christianity that have been th have thrived most successfully in the South 
have been very different from what Europeans and North Americans consider to be mainstream. These models have been far more enthusiastic, much more central, concerned with the immediate workings of the supernatural in this world, as opposed to an escapist theology where the goal is to leave earth and get to heaven and avoid hell. So all that means is that many of the more liberal and progressive ideas concerning Jesus that we just spoke about will find themselves more and more at home in Christianity as it continues to move more south and west and east, sorry, uh, out of the west, back to the lands that run um, where its roots run deep. So as it moves away from that western mindset, back towards the original places of where its roots were, um, you're going to see its theology expand and get bigger and maybe even more progressive. Um, it's time for something new, right? Um, Brian McLaren in his book. The Great Spiritual Migration says that this newness is not something to fear. He says the spiritual conversion won't change the true essence, heart, or treasure of the Christian faith. Christianity, he says, will still be deeply rooted in Jesus and his good news. It will still draw sustenance, as Jesus did from the Bible, as a rich library full of wisdom, warning, challenge, travail, and inspiration. It will still be informed by the Christian tradition with all of its inspiration and ambiguity, its tragedy, its comedy, its irony, its paradox, its restless hope. It will still engage in the core spiritual practices that have sustained Christians for centuries. Prayer, contemplation, fellowship, worship, service, lifelong learning from our texts and our traditions. Yes, it will differ in significant ways from conventional Christianity, especially in its modern American form, but it will still be Christian in the best sense of the word, a better, more reasonable, more responsible, wiser, and more sustainable way to be a human being in the way of Jesus. So here's my closing challenge for us, the challenge for me anyways. Um, May you enter into 2019 walking in the footsteps of Jesus. May you hear the cries of the oppressed around you. May you cross boundaries that your churches and traditions say are forbidden. May you break rules that no one has dared break before. May you model the upside-down kingdom in your words and in your actions. May you stand alongside and love those the church might consider to be enemies of God. And may you dare to believe in a God who is not a torturing warlord, but who is bigger, greater, and more loving than eternal torture. Much love to you, and a very happy new year. Thanks for hanging in there with me with my voice. I hope this was helpful for you super helpful for me, and I'll see you in 2019. Bye-bye.